You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, we have finally made it to Jonah chapter 2. And uh, this is the, the, the moment when Jonah is praying from the belly of a big fish. Uh, it is quite the moment. And so, uh, so as we jump into Jonah 2, let me just get you reacclimated and sort of reacquainted with the story of Jonah thus far. So if you remember, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God speaks to our prophet Jonah. And uh, he says something to Jonah that Jonah didn't want to hear from God in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. God said, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And if you remember how the story goes... In verse 2, God says, go. And then in verse 3, Jonah looks back at God and says, no, I'm not going there. Jonah runs. Rather than going to Nineveh, this way, Jonah goes to Joppa and Tarshish, which is that way, just the exact opposite direction. And in this story of Jonah, these four chapters, uh, running, what we're seeing Jonah do, running, is a storied presentation of sin. Now, I want to take a second, because I haven't done this in the past few weeks, but I want to take a second to be fair to Jonah. Uh, I I would not want you to get the impression that Jonah was totally disobedient to God. Uh, That would be an unfair description of what's going on in Jonah's life in this moment. Jonah was obedient to God up to a point. He was obedient in most areas of of his life. In almost every area of his life, Jonah was obedient. He was obedient to God to a point. But with Nineveh, Jonah drew a line in the sand with God. Uh, With Nineveh, Jonah is looking at God and saying, God, do not cross that line. There are some things that you can ask me, all the things on that side of the line, and there are other things that you cannot ask of me, God. And God, when you talk about Nineveh, me going to Nineveh and calling out against it, you have crossed the line, God. I will not do that. I'm obedient up until a point. Now, as you read the story of Jonah, we are intended to see through Jonah to the Jonah in us. That you have a Jonah in you. I have a Jonah in me. To the Jonah in us. Like Jonah, we all have a tendency to obey God to a point. We all have a tendency to draw a line and to say, God, you can ask anything you want on that side of the line. But God, there are things over here that you cannot ask of me. We're obedient to God to a point. God, we are all yours until you ask fill in the blank. God, we are all yours. Anything you want, you you can ask of me until you, you meddle in my sexuality. God, you are not allowed in this area of my life. You do not get to call the shots in that area of my life. God, I am all yours. You can, you can ask whatever you want until you start addressing my generosity, my, my stewardship. Then, God, you have crossed the line. Do not mention things like a tie. Do not mention a thing like a generous giving. God, no, God, you have crossed the line when you meddle in that area of my life. God, I am all yours, but no, you cannot ask one of my children to give their life to make Jesus known in a country I've never heard of. God, you cannot ask things like this of me. We're all prone to obey God to a point. Jonah is not just seen in this story. Jonah is in our heart. He's alive in us. 
that we, like Jonah, have that tendency to obey God to a point. So Jonah ran from God. This was the line in the sand for him. He, he ran from God. But even more shocking than Jonah's run from God is God's run to Jonah. God's run to Jonah. This is, uh, in the story of Jonah, the storied presentation of grace. God's run to Jonah. Verse 4, but God hurled a great wind at Jonah. Grace came, pursuing grace came in the form of a storm. Now, part of what the story of Jonah is teaching us is that God has more ways of confronting Jonah than Jonah has ways of defying God. I love how one pastor put it. He said, your arms are too short to box with God. And that's true. Our arms are too short. He's too good of a boxer. But here is the problem in the story of Jonah. Jonah will not put down the gloves. So in a final act of defiance, the prophet looks at these pagan sailors and says to them, throw me in. I would rather die in that stormy sea than comply with the commands of God. I would rather die than comply. So with no other options, the sailors look at Jonah and with a grieving heart, uh, they throw Jonah into the stormy sea. Now this would be a great place for the story to end, wouldn't it? Uh, at, at this point in the story, God rescues some sailors, he saves some uh, sailors, and God has finally given Jonah what he deserves. The, the story could end right there at verse 16 of chapter 1, and the story would be great. It would be a great one-chapter story about Jonah, but the story doesn't end there. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, we read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It's amazing, surprising. Grace didn't just come in the form of a storm. It also came in the form of a fish. In the form of a fish. This story is just packed with surprises. Now, before we get to Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, I, I want to just say a couple of things about this fish. Some, and many do, look at this story, uh, the story of Jonah, and they say, there's just no way this could happen. A person cannot survive in the belly of a fish for three days. That, that is impossible. It cannot happen. My response back to that is, I totally agree. It cannot happen. A person cannot be bitten by a fish, swallowed, survive in the belly of that fish for three days. It would actually take a miracle for that to happen. It would require a miracle. And here's the amazing thing about the Bible. The Bible is full of miracles. I wouldn't even put this miracle in like the top 10 list of miracles. The Bible's got a lot of crazier things that it's doing than just this moment of a person being swallowed by a fish and living in his belly for three days. I just think about all the miracles you have in the Bible. You have God stretching out the Red Sea, parting it, and a couple of million people walking on dry land through an ocean, through a big body of water. You have food, manna, being rained down like dew from heaven every day. Or the pinnacle of all miracles in the Bible, you've got the resurrection of Jesus, a person dead three days in a tomb, walks out of the grave. And if a person, Jesus, can walk out of the grave, I think it's very plausible to believe the Lord could do a miracle to keep a person alive in the belly of a great fish for three days. Amen? 
So, so if the Bible is full of these type of miracles, it makes this miracle feel very plausible. Okay, now to Jonah, uh, to his prayer in the belly of a fish, chapter 2. I, what I want to do today is really just point out two observations that we see in this chapter, two things we learn in this chapter, uh, two things this chapter shows us. And here's the first one. Chapter 2, when we just zoom out of this chapter and look at it from sort of a 30,000-foot view, chapter 2 shows a prodigal prophet caught by pursuing grace. This is what this chapter is showing us, a prodigal prophet caught by pursuing grace. So think about chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jonah runs. But in chapter 2, in the belly of this great fish, grace finally wins. It finally wins. In chapter 2, we see Jonah's cold heart thawing. We see God breaking up his hard heart. We see Jonah finally turning back to God. In chapter 2, there are things happening. There are things being said that that could have never have happened, that Jonah could have never have said in chapter 1. The Jonah of chapter 2 is a much different person than the Jonah of chapter 1. God has done a supernatural work in his heart. Pursuing grace found Jonah, and in chapter 2, pursuing grace is pulling Jonah back to God. This is what we're seeing in chapter 2. Now, let me give you some evidences in chapter 2 of God's work in Jonah's life. That pursuing grace has actually caught Jonah and is pulling Jonah back to God. Let me give you three or four evidences of the grace of God at work in Jonah's life. Here's the first one, that Jonah, in chapter 2, prays to God. That's a shocking development in the story. Uh, The prophet now is actually praying to God. You see this in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Then look at verse 2. It says, Jonah is saying, talking, I called out to the Lord. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. So think about chapter 1. In chapter 1, everyone but Jonah is praying. But now, for the first time in the story, Jonah prays. Now, why is this? Well, praying or crying out to God, pouring out your heart to God in prayer, it is an act of humility. This is why Jonah can't do it in Jonah chapter 1. He doesn't have the humility to do it. And just think about this in your own life. A lack of prayer is one indicator that the cancer of prideful self-reliance is crawled into your heart and beginning to make a home. Prayerlessness is an indication of that. But on the other hand, when we are praying, when we are calling out, when we are crying out to God, it's evidence that we have been humbled by God, that our defiance is disappearing, that our cold heart is thawing, that our hard heart is breaking up. I love how John Calvin talks about prayer. He says that he gives this imagery for prayer. He says, prayer is the moment when we climb up into our Father's lap and we whisper in his ear. That's what prayer is. And it's hard to be defiant and prideful when we are up in the lap of our good dad whispering in his ear. And this is where Jonah finds himself in Jonah chapter 2. He is praying to God. Now, I want to just invite you here and just linger over this for a moment to look at your own life. Would words like he or she, you, fill in your name, is praying to the Lord. 
calling out to God, crying out to God. Is, it, are those phrases or words that would be used to describe your life? Calling out, crying out to God. Is that happening in you? If you're just to take a look at your prayer life, would these words describe you? Jonah prays to God. Here's one, here's one way you can know that the, the Lord is doing a work of grace in your heart. When your life is just filled with moments of crying out to God. When you go from a person who prays kind of periodically to a praying person. Jonah prays to God. Here's the second evidence of the grace of the Lord in Jonah's life, this work of God in his heart. Jonah not only prays to God, Jonah sought the presence of God. He sought the presence of God. Look at verse 4. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Okay, now think about what's happening in Jonah chapter 1. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's primary goal is to ex escape the presence of God. He is running from God. It's, it, the text is clear. It's repeatedly saying he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But now you see a man in Jonah chapter 2 with a new appetite, with new desires. He now has an appetite to be in God's temple, with God's people, enjoying the person of God. That is quite a turnaround, isn't it? That, that it, Jonah now wants God. He, he wants God. This is the work that's happened in Jonah's life. And here is one way you know that grace is working in your life. When you take a look at your heart, you are discovering that you have an appetite for God. You're looking at your heart and you're seeing in your heart desires for Jesus, wants for God. You're seeing these things emerge and develop and come up and out of your heart. And this is Jonah. Jonah has a new appetite for God. He wants God. Then look at verse 7. Jonah says, I remembered the Lord. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah has forgotten God. But in Jonah chapter 2, he remembers God. He gets his heart and his mind back. Like the, like the prodigal son in the story in Luke 15, in that pigsty, he is finally, just like the prodigal son, coming to his senses. This is Jonah. So again, let's linger here for a moment. When you look at your own heart, can you see that work of grace in your life that's producing a new appetite for God? that's producing wants for God, the desire for God? Can you see an appetite for God in your life? Is there evidence that there is a want of God? Like your heart is saying to God, I want you. Can you see that? It, it is not uncommon for people in our culture to come to churches just like this, do all the religious things. We, we gather, we serve, we're doing all the things, yet with no enjoyment, no want of God. Can you find an appetite for God in your heart? A want for God in your heart? Jonah wanted the presence of God. Here's the third evidence of a work of God in Jonah's life. Jonah had a new sense of God's compassion. A new sense of God's compassion. So let me tease this out. In, in, 
in chapter one, if you were describing the way Jonah felt to people outside of God's covenant community, uh, here's some words that I would use to describe that. Uh, if Jonah is thinking about the people of Nineveh, uh, the Assyrian people, uh, Jonah felt disgust toward them. That, that's the emotion underneath kind of Jonah's uh, heart. Uh, then if you think about the pagan sailors, this group of people that are outside of God's covenant community, um, I think a word to describe Jonah's feeling toward them would be indifference. Uh, these are the words that, that are working in Jonah, that emotions working in Jonah to describe how he's feeling about people outside of, of God's covenant community. But now, in chapter 2, as he thinks about uh, these sailors that he was indifferent to, even the people of, of Nineveh that he just, he was filled with disgust over. When Jonah is thinking about them, Jonah says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols, just like the pagan sailors, just like the people of Nineveh, those who pay regard to vain idols, and by the way, just like Jonah's own life and heart, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Rather than disgust or indifference, compassion creeps into Jonah's heart. His heart begins to warm for those who are far from God. He begins to feel compassion for those who are perishing, for those who are forsaking their hope of steadfast love. So again, this is an opportunity for us to read this story and to look at our own hearts. Here is how you know that God is doing a work of grace in you. That grace is actually having an effect on your heart. You begin to feel compassion and ache for perishing people. Like the Lord actually gifts you tears to cry over perishing people. When is the last time you've been able to do that? To actually shed a tear over a person who is running from God, running to their ruin. When's the last time that's happened? You know that God is doing a work of grace in your heart when you can do that. Here's the fourth evidence of Jonah's, this work of God in Jonah's heart. Jonah also had a new resolve to follow God. Look at verse 9, a new resolve to follow God. Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. What I have vowed, I will pay. Now, that last phrase, what I have vowed, not, now I will pay, uh, that, that phrase probably goes back to the moment when God called Jonah to be a prophet. And that call in Jonah's life uh, was, it worked in Jonah's heart in such a way where, where Jonah responded by saying, yes, God, I surrender to that call. Yet you're asking this from me and my yet, I'm a yes to that. My yes is on the table, God. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, God, whatever you want me to say, Yes. It was this moment of beautiful surrender to this call of God, this, this command of God, this ask of God in Jonah's life. It seems like in this text, Jonah is looking back to that moment and saying, God, what I surrendered then, oh God, now I'm surrendering again. I'm surrendering again now, oh God. 
God, I want to affirm to you for the thousandth time that, God, I am yours, that, that you have me, that what you want wins. God, that I'm going to lay down my defiance. God, I surrender. Jonah is, is surrendering again to God. Now, again, let's just linger over our lives for a moment. When you think about moments of surrender in your life, when would you point to those sort of moments in your life? I think a lot of us might point to um, a time that's way far back in the past. Uh, maybe it's a decade ago or years ago. We've got these beautiful highlights in our walk with the Lord when we have just surrendered and said yes to everything that God would want. Yes, oh God. But I wonder if since that moment of surrender way back then, there has been a slow drift in our life. A slow drift away from God. And I wonder how many of us in the room today are in need of a surrender again. Not just one way back then, but another one now again in our life. I wonder if you need that. A renewed sense of God. I do not call the shots in my life. You do. You, you win, oh God. If you want evidence of the Lord's work in your life or a human life or in Jonah's life, it's in moments like this when we're willing to put our life back on the line before the Lord and to say to God, I'm all yours, oh God. I'm all yours. Okay, now I want to be clear in chapter 2 that there is still a lot of work to do in Jonah's heart. Uh, if you want to see evidence of that, just read chapter 4, right? There is a lot of work left to do. But at the same time, I want to affirm that Jonah's heart is thawing, that pursuing grace is pulling his heart back to God. The Jonah we see in chapter 2 is much different than the Jonah that we see and we're acquainted with in Jonah chapter 1. Okay, now I want to get to the second thing of this chapter. The second thing I want to just kind of lift up and pull out of, of Jonah chapter 2. <clears throat> The first is a prodigal prophet caught by pursuing grace. The first thing I want to draw your attention to, and here's the second thing. Chapter 2 shows how pursuing grace changes prodigal prophets. It shows us how pursuing grace changes prodigal prophets or prodigals like you and me. How pursuing grace changes a human heart. So chapter 2 is going to show us the means God uses to change Jonah's heart, to make Jonah a, a person of prayer, to, to reignite an appetite for God in Jonah's heart, to put fresh compassion into the heart of Jonah. It's going to show us how God's doing that, how God is getting Jonah back to a point of surrender again. How is God doing that? What is the means that God is using? And the means that we see in Jonah chapter 2 come in two parts. Here's the first means that God uses. God brought great distress. God introduced distress into Jonah's life. This is one of God's means. If you read chapter 2, it doesn't take long to see that Jonah is in a tough position. He is on the brink in, in chapter 2. So just follow along here. Look at verse 1. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. It wasn't out of a bright, sunny day, right? He called out to the Lord 
out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Now, that word Sheol, when it, when it appears in the Old Testament, 95% of the time it's used. Almost every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to the realm of the dead. For people who are dying or have died. That, that's what it's referring to. So I love what one commentator says here. He says that metaphor... Uh, Jonah, in this poetic language, is using, I cried out from the belly of Sheol. He's, he's saying, this commentator saying, that metaphor conveys despair in the darkest hue. That's what Jonah chapter 2 is, is, is showing us. Despair, distress that's so deep, it is called despair, or described as despair in the darkest hue. So Jonah is thrown into the water. He knows that death is right around the corner. And then you get to verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, O God. For you, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and all of your billows passed over me. It couldn't get more threatening, more serious, more stressful in Jonah's life. He is drowning in a sinking into a watery grave. Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon you and your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's hard to get much lower in life than down to the roots of the mountain, than down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And then verse 7, Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, it's distress. Jonah is having a really, really, really bad day, right? This is what chapter 2 is showing us. Now, I want you to notice in chapter 2 who Jonah says brought the distress. Look at verse 3. For you, Jonah is talking to God. For you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. So when I read verse 3, it makes me think, I need to stop there. I need to think about that because I just read chapter 1. And when I read chapter 1, it wasn't God who threw Jonah into the sea. It was the sailors who threw Jonah into the, to the sea. So what is going on here? Well, I think this is the answer. Jonah, in this moment, is seeing past the surface of his circumstances to the sovereign hand of God. Jonah's seeing the hand of God behind the hand of the sailors. This is why he goes on to say, all of your waves, God, all of your billows passed over me. Jonah knows these waves are not random. These waves have been sent from God. These billows are breaking over his life, and they are from the hand of a sovereign God. This is what Jonah is saying here. Jonah sounds a lot like Job in Job uh, chapter 1, verse 21, where Job says, it's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. But, but it is the Lord. 
He's seeing behind the, the hands of the sailors. He's seeing behind the storm to the sovereign hand of God. This distress was brought by God. So what is God up to in this story? What is God doing here? Why is God, why is God bringing this distress? Well, let me just affirm this first. This distress is not from the hand of an angry God who must be appeased. That is not the source of this distress. It's not from the heart of an angry God who is saying, you better do this to appease me. It's not that. This distress, this despair in its darkest hue is from the hand of a gracious God who loved Jonah enough to wound him so that he could rescue him. That's what God is doing here. See, the problem in Jonah chapter 1 is that Jonah had a false god. He had a false god. Jonah recreated the god of the Bible to fit his preferences. This is what's happened in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah has taken the god of the Bible, refashioned that god to make a god that would fit what Jonah would want. And, and God's recre- Jonah's recreated God, his refashioned God, that God would never, would never rescue Nineveh. That God would only ruin Nineveh. See, he had a God who would just fit his preferences, who, who operated in a way that Jonah thought was right. That, that was Jonah's recreated God. But then in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, the real God showed up. And when the real God showed up, Jonah, like so many of us, ran. He didn't like that God. So he tried to flee from the presence of that God. He ran from that God. So God bruises Jonah. He bruises Jonah with a storm. He bruises Jonah with the hands of sailors. He bruises Jonah in the belly of a big fish. But God's bruises carry blessing. The bruises came with blessing. God brought distress into Jonah's life. He took Jonah all the way down to the roots of the mountain. God brought distress to produce in Jonah desperation. To get Jonah to the end of himself. To exhaust all of Jonah's options. God is introducing this distress to bring Jonah to a place of desperation, to make Jonah ready for rescue. This is what's happening here. Desperation producing distress was step one in God's rescuing work. I mean, think about the story. For the first time in the story, Jonah is looking up to God and saying, God, I need you. I actually need you now. This is distress creating that desperation to make Jonah ready for rescue. And this is not unique to Jonah. This is, in a lot of ways, this story is a microcosm of what you see throughout the Old Testament. Right? Just think about the Old Testament pattern. In the Old Testament, you've got the people of God and they are disobedient. And God comes to them in their disobedience with discipline, and he introduces distress into their life, hard things into their life. And those hard things are meant to produce desperation in their hearts. And that desperation gets them ready for rescue. They actually then look up to God and say, God, we need help. 
They begin to cry out to God in their desperation. And listen, this is not just the way that God deals with Jonah or the Old Testament people of God. This is the way God deals with us, with you and with me. Until we die or Jesus comes back like Jonah, we're going to have a tendency to recreate God, the God of the Bible, to fit our preferences. We do it innately. We don't even know we're doing it, and we're just remaking God, refashioning God to be what we want him to be. And then when the real God shows up, we run. This is why we obey God to a point. This is why we obey God until he addresses this thing that doesn't fit our preferences or that thing that's outside of the box. It's across the line in our life. But God loves us too much to let us win. So he will do whatever it takes to rescue us. And whatever it takes is often God introducing distress. He bruises us. He afflicts us. He lays us low. And in this room today, this is where many of us find ourselves in distress, our life feeling like it is just unraveling around us. Things are just not going the way they're supposed to go. And if that's you, let's just let Jonah chapter 2 encourage us. It is here in the Bible to remind us that pain in the hands of God always comes with purpose, that bruises always carry blessing, that with distress comes desperation, the very thing we need if we're going to be ready for rescue. With distress comes desperation. And we all know this. This is why so often the worst moments of our life are our best moments with God. One of the things that I love to ask people uh, is, what are the two most forming events in your life? Other than your conversion, what are the two most forming events in your life? And it is almost without exception that when people are talking about the most formative events of their life, that they talk about the most painful events of their life. It's true for me. Um, I was just thinking uh, last night about a season a couple of years ago in Laura and I's life. It was the, the darkest season of our marriage. We've been married for 20 years. It was by far the hardest season of our marriage. Uh, we were fostering and we were just on two really different pages. And it was, it was a bruising from God. And I'm just now able to look back at that bruising and, and be able to say that with that bruising came blessing. That with that distress came a desperation that readied us for rescue. That, that got us to a point of calling out to God in new and deeper ways. That opened up a life of prayer. That, that put in our hearts more compassion. That made us seek God more. That, that bruising was a blessing. And this is what God is doing in your distress 
If God is bruising you this morning, it's so with that bruising, he can, he can move into your life blessing. That, that with that distress, he can bring about a desperation for him. So that more than anything in the world, you would want the living God. This is what he's doing in your life right now. So God's first step in turning Jonah's rebellious heart was distress, this distress that led to desperation, but it wasn't God's last step in the story. Means one of God turning Jonah's heart was distress. Means two is God brought great deliverance. Means one, God brought great distress. Means two, God brought great deliverance. And notice the order. First, it's distress or desperation. So desperation first, then deliverance. But that order is important. It's pursuing grace distressed Jonah, then pursuing grace delivered Jonah. That's the pattern in the Bible. Desperation, then deliverance. So watch how this plays out. Jonah's thrown overboard to a certain death. Then you get to chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed... I love that word appointed. The NIV translates that word appointed, provided. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, many people view that fish as punishment from God, but that fish is not punishment. That fish is pursuing grace. It's the grace of God, the relentless grace of God, chasing down our prodigal prophet. I love how one pastor says it. He says, this was not God paying Jonah back for his sin. This was God bringing Jonah back from his sin. That's what that fish is meant to do, to bring Jonah back from his sin. That fish was a means of deliverance. It was a means of of salvation. It was the, the way out, the only way out of Jonah's hopeless situation. The fish was the only way out. With his life moments away from death, God, the great deliverer, sends a great fish and delivers, rescues, saves Jonah. And then watch how Jonah prays this moment back to God. In chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And then listen to what the Lord did. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the darkest hue of despair, I cried and, he says, God, you heard my voice. Jonah chapter 2 is written for those in distress. And it's written to remind us that God listens to the cry of desperate people. Even when it's your actions that have created your desperation. God listens to the cry of desperate people. So if this morning you feel so desperate, you feel so weak, so needy, so broken, you are so down, all the way down to the roots of the mountain that you don't even know how to pray. You don't even know what it would look like to cry out to God. If that's you today, God is looking at you and saying, well, finally, Now, my friend, you are ready for rescue. Now you are ready for salvation. You are ready for deliverance. 
Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Like, but listen to this last phrase. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God brought distress and God brought deliverance. And here is the heart-thawing truth that Jonah knew. God's deliverance was undeserved. It was undeserved. God would have been justified in letting Jonah die in the belly of Sheol, burying Jonah at the bottom of the mountain. He would have been justified in doing that, but that's not what happens. And this is why grace is so amazing. It's because God bestows it on undeserving people like Jonah and like you. God bestows it on people like us that are undeserving. And it's this combination of distress on one hand and deliverance on the other that thawed Jonah's cold heart. It's, it was God's means of opening Jonah's heart again so he could pray, so that he would actually want God, so that compassion would fill his heart. But it was God's means of doing this work in Jonah's life. Now, let me close here. I want to close by just making one last connection, and then we'll be done. You know, it's interesting to think about the story of the Bible, because every small story is meant to, to be seen through so that we can see the big story of the Bible. And, and the gospel, the big story of the Bible, is a story of distress and deliverance. And in that way, this episode in the life of Jonah is really a storied presentation of the gospel. First, it's distress. Because of our running, our sin, our rebellion, God puts upon us great distress. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's God saying that my wrath will take you to the belly of Sheol. My wrath will one day bury you under the mountains. Because of our sin, we are eternally cut off from the presence of God. That, that's the distressing situation that we're born into. And it's a universal Scenario. It's a universal distress. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, me, Jonah, every last one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that has put us in a situation that is more urgent, more distressing, more eternally serious than anything Jonah could have even imagined. And that distress should create in us a swelling sense of desperation. A desperation that would cause us to look up to God and say, God, we need you. God, would you come and rescue us, oh God? Distress, then deliverance. The good news of the gospel announces that God meets our distress with his deliverance. Again, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many people know that verse and we stop right there. But there's another verse that follows it. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Deliverance came in the form of a person. His name is Jesus. And Jesus delivered us through distress. As those Roman soldiers hung Jesus from a tree, Jesus went down to the roots of the mountain. He went down into the belly of Sheol. God's waves and God's billows broke into Jesus. The wrath your sin has earned and my sin has earned, Jesus endured. And there on that Roman cross, Jesus died for our deliverance. Friends, this is the story of the Bible. It's, it's the story that Jonah is pointing us to. And friends, if you are in Christ, here's the amazing news this morning. This is your story as well. Will you pray with me? I'll give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be today. It's an amazing thing to recognize that God has been pursuing every one of us in this room. And God's pursuing grace has led to a morning like this. Where God has put a fork in the road in front of you. Where God is saying, you can be buried by my wrath down at the roots of the mountain. Or you can cry out in desperation and be delivered. And for some of us, God's pursuing grace has us here this morning so that we can respond to God for the very first time. To respond to the rescuing and saving work of God by, by holding up our lives and in desperation saying to God, God, I need you. Here's my life, God. I surrender it to you. It's, it's all yours, oh God. I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, my deliverer. And for every person who cries out in desperation today, God promises to deliver, to rescue, to save. And if that's you and for the first time you're crying out to God, just do that in the best way you know how, just there in your seat, there in your living room, cry out to God. He is so ready, so willing to deliver. And for others of us in this room, God's pursuing grace has us here today, not to, de to deliver us and rescue us for the first time, but for the thousandth time, the 10,000th time. And here's the response God is looking for, for us to hold up our lives and yet again today say, God, I surrender. God, just like I surrendered way back then, 
God, I am surrendering again. Here's my life, it's yours, oh God. So God, would you meet us in this room? God, would you meet us? God, would you do that rescuing work of grace in us? And oh God, we ask that in the beautiful, powerful, strong name of Jesus. Amen.